Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Becoming from 90% Hoops. Today, we have a very special guest. This is Coach Andy Fitzgerald, who will be on the podcast today to share his story and just drop some knowledge for everybody that's listening today. Um, so first of all, just want to thank Coach Fitzgerald for joining the podcast today, and uh, we'll get right into it. So our first question is, who are some coaches that had more of an indirect influence on you? Maybe someone that you watched on TV, coaches that you didn't know personally, but they still shaped who you are as a coach. Yeah, that's a great question. And first of all, you know, thanks for having me. Always happy to share. So happy to hop on and appreciate what you do sharing uh, the game and people's stories. Uh, probably someone that had the biggest impact on me was John Beeline. Um, obviously, I've never met him. I've uh, never worked for him or anything like that, but just watching his teams, um, the culture that he was able to build at really all of his stops uh, was really impressive to me. I think what stood out the most with him was kind of like the terminology that he had in his program, um, which I've tried to steal as much as possible in terms of you know creating terminology throughout my own programs. Uh, but I think that's been really good. Uh, so everyone's on the same page. There's continuity throughout the program. Um, it's just easier. Everyone knows, you know, what certain things mean. Uh, there's so many different terms out there for describing, you know, ball screen coverage, whatever it might be. So making sure you have that term in your program uh, was really important. Um, other people in terms of culture and kind of personality, you know, I'm a pretty laid back, calm individual. So guys like Brad Stevens, um, you know, Fred Hoiberg, their coaching styles have kind of, um, you know, stood out to me and I try to learn as much from them as possible. Um, and it's been great, you know, obviously learning from guys like that have, who have achieved, you know, really at a high level and done a lot of good things. Uh, it's been really rewarding. And, um, you know, anything I can take away from coaches like that is uh, really important to do. Yeah, no, those coaches that you mentioned are all all great coaches who have you know had a lot of success. Um, so you've had a very interesting journey in coaching. Yes. Um, so just talk about the first moment that you realized that coaching is your dream? Like this is something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life. Yeah, um, you know, it, it goes way back. Um, I was that kid growing up that, you know, was designing plays, you know, instead of maybe doing the game winning shot, I was the kid drawing up the play before the game winning shot and then obviously going and doing it. So I knew from a young age I wanted to coach, um, you know, and then I was able to play in college and it became really apparent at that point that, you know, this is what I want to do and whatever it, you know, it takes to get there is something I'm worth or something worth doing. So um, I don't know if there's one moment that really stands out, but I know it's from a young age, um, you know, diagramming plays, watching, you know, I watched a lot of North Carolina basketball growing up and you know, watching their fast break and things like that and studying Dean Smith and doing reports on John Wooden. Um, I just really liked, um, you know, the way they, you know, built the culture and had teams and really had an impact on their players and we're able to achieve at a high level. So um, coaching was always something I wanted to do and, and have been lucky to be in it now for a little over a decade and, and still going strong. So talk about those times where, you know, you were just doing anything you could to pursue coaching, whether it was working jobs that had nothing to do with basketball. Um, kind of describe that period in your life where you're not at the position that you wanted to be in, but right. you still had that vision and you kind of had to make some sacrifices in order to get to where you are. 
Absolutely. So I have worked, um, you know, probably 20 odd jobs while coaching um, just to, you know, one, make ends meet, but also be able to still coach. Um, so it all started kind of in grad school for me. I was at Florida State, was able to get involved with their program um, and work a lot of their camps and kind of do some things behind the scenes operations wise. Um, so it kind of all started there, obviously was a, a full time student, um, sold tickets in the athletic department, taught some PE classes, you know, just things you had to do to earn a little bit of extra money in order to one survive, but also be able to do the basketball stuff. Um, you know, got my first college job after that experience, uh, Division Three assistant. Um, pursued another master's degree, so you know, was also doing that. But um, worked in a golf pro shop. Uh, worked at a country club at night where I bust tables primarily and did a little bit of banquet serving. Um, you know, a couple other odd jobs at that time as well. I, I got up and mowed fairways. So if you can tell I'm a big golf guy, but those jobs typically give you some flexibility and time to do the coaching as well. So, um, you know, I was mowing fairways in the morning, you know, coaching in, in the afternoons and then typically, you know, busting tables at night for a couple of years. Um, then I was able to return to my alma mater and coach under the coach I played for in college at UW Parkside Division II school. Uh, at that time, the only way I could coach was to become a full-time professor on campus. So uh, at 24 years old, I was the youngest professor on campus and taught some sport business classes full-time, uh, you know, did the whole coaching thing as well, recruiting, um, scouting, you know, going out to high school games three, four times a week. Um, so super busy there, but also extremely rewarding. Um, that experience uh, lasted three years, which was really great. Enjoyed it a lot. Um, but then, you know, went on to take yeah, some junior college jobs, uh, had to become an academic advisor in the first school I was at, um, which was great. I was able to advise all the student athletes, which was really rewarding just to help them, you know, guide them through the process of picking classes and getting ready for their four-year school and things like that. Um, then was finally able to get my first, um, head coaching job at the junior college level. As I'm sure a lot of your you know, listeners know, you don't make a lot of money at that level. So some other things I did, I became a caddy um, out of Aaron Hills Golf Course. Um, so during like the five week or excuse me, the five month season they have, I, I would caddy out there and then, you know, coach the rest of the year. Um, unfortunately, COVID, you know, kind of derailed that position, I guess I would say. Um, so last year I was at UW-Milwaukee um, doing some special assistant work under Coach Patrick Baldwin, who was great with me. Um, gave me a ton to do with analytics and some scouting stuff. Unfortunately, um, you know, the staff was let go. So at that point, I transitioned to the business school at UWM, um, was able to become an advisor there for about six months. And then just a couple months ago, I actually transitioned to the high school level where I am now the head coach at University School of Milwaukee, uh, K-12 school, and also uh, assistant athletic director. So as you can see, a lot of different jobs, um, but it's all been worth it. It's all been really fulfilling and it's allowed me to coach, which is the number one passion. Um, but during that time when you're busting tables or you're mowing lawns, you know, how are you able to stay motivated and stay positive? You know, because I'm sure you had some days where, you know, you were really frustrated and you you felt like your your goal was really far away. So how were you able to stay positive and motivated during that time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll be the first to tell you a lot of it was challenging times and it was tough. You know, you kind of just waiting for that break, um, hoping someone gives you a chance out, out there. 
Um, but I think just your, your why, your purpose, you know, for me, that's coaching and helping people. Um, so at the end of the day, I was happy to do it because I was able to, you know, work with teams and, and be in the gym. And, um, you know, those times kind of made up for the, the down times where, you know, I was mad that I had to wake up at 4 a.m. to go cut fairways and, and then get home, you know, at midnight or whatever it might be. But um, those hours in the gym and just working with the guys and being able to help them grow and develop and um, that was all worth it in the end. And it, it still is to this day. Um, you know, it, like I said, being in the gym, there's nothing better. And uh, you just kind of have to keep that in mind and keep pushing through and um, hope all your hard work is going to pay off in the end. And, and someone out there sees that and uh, eventually you kind of get to the position you want to be in. Yeah. And so how are you able to keep your energy up? Because I'm sure, you know, some of those those jobs, you know, required a lot of hard work. And then when you go into the gym, you know, you got to bring energy as well. So how are you able to kind of sustain your energy throughout those long days? Yeah, no, it was tough. Uh, a lot of Red Bull uh, for sure. But also, I don't know, it's, like, it's almost like a, a, you know, a switch flips when you enter the gym. Um, you can kind of put away you know, all that other stuff in life for you know, however long you're in there. Um, and luckily, I've been around really good you know, other coaches, whether head coaches that I worked for, assistants under me that are extremely passionate individuals as well. So that kind of you know, lifts your spirits right away. And um, being around guys that want to work hard and get better, um, you, know, you have to bring it. So um, there's really no choice but to you know, find that energy and kind of dig deep. But um, that's the stuff you look forward to, you know, getting in the gym. That's why you do all the other stuff. So, um, yeah, digging down deep, but also knowing this is, you know, the reason you do everything for it and just giving it your all that day and, and doing it all again the next day. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Love that, uh, that hustle. Um, so one position that I thought was very interesting that you had was you were the director of basketball analytics for yes. the Connecticut Cobras, of Correct. the TBL. Yes. So I don't think there's a lot of people out there that are too familiar with the TBL. So just kind of talk about how that opportunity came about and then yeah. provide a little bit of information on that league and, yeah. you know, kind of what you were doing there. Yeah. So the TBL um, is still relatively new. As you know, there's probably, you know, probably know there's some different leagues popping up. Um, so this is a lot of guys, you know, post college, um, you know, maybe you still trying to pursue some overseas opportunities or potentially, you know, G League opportunities, but guys that are still trying to, to make some money um, and play, you know, professionally. So um, the season was, you know, roughly really over the winter, kind of stretched into early May uh, for playoffs. So how that came about is I actually saw a posting on LinkedIn, um, which is actually where I found a few of my jobs. Um, so the head coach was just looking for, you know, as much help as possible. It was some remote work. Um, I had done analytics for several division one programs. Um, so I just sent him my work, you know, some of the examples and he loved it. And, you know, we hopped on a zoom, I think the next morning and just kind of talked about what we could do there and, you know, sent him some reports, you know, throughout their season. Um, yeah. So it was all, you know, very hands off from my perspective, you know, could watch the games and stream them and then send reports. But I, you know, I never met anyone in person or was around the team, but really cool experience just to keep working with analytics, which is something I really enjoy doing. And I think it can provide a little bit of an edge for a staff if you're kind of doing it the right way. But um, yeah, so it just came about, um, you know, I was working at UW Milwaukee at the time, but I thought this would be a cool experience. 
Um, you know, it was, you know, a commitment of like 20 hours a week. So, um, you know, whenever I could get away from the UWM basketball, I'd work on some Cobra stuff and, and after each game and send them some reports. And luckily they typically only played, you know, back to back Friday, Saturday or Friday, Sunday. So pretty much dedicated my weekends to that. And it was, it was a ton of fun. Oh, that's great. I want to stay on analytics for just a second here. Um, you know, analytics have become such a big part of the game, not only basketball, but all sports. Um, and I think there's a lot of fans out there that don't really understand analytics, at least on a, you know, on a deeper level. Yeah. Um, so if you could sum up maybe two, three or four, you know, what are the most important analytics that translate to winning or translate to impact on the court? Yeah. Like how, how can, you know, we as fans understand analytics better, you know, from watching the games, you know, which, which stats are, are most important to impacting the game and impacting winning? Absolutely. Um, you know, obviously the four factors are out there. I would probably agree with most that say those are the most important. Um, you know, I, I think there's been some other analytics uh, people out there that have really studied it and broke down where effective field goal percentage and turnover percentage. If you can win those two things, um, typically you're going to win that game. Um, so obviously, you know, you need to hit some threes at a pretty a good rate, uh, get to the basket, you know, finish your twos. But also limit your turnovers. Uh, that gives you, you know, more possessions with, you know, shot opportunities, um, and kind of vice versa on defense. You're trying to do the same thing, you know, creating turnovers or also, you know, limiting the threes from the opponent, um, you know, protecting the basket, things like that. Uh, so typically, what I did for the teams that I did analytics for was look at like nine to ten key stats, both on offense and defense, um, and I kind of track that throughout the season. You know, match it versus averages, things like that. Uh, which was really good. So we would track points per possession, effective field goal percentage, uh, both defensive and offensive rebounding percentage. Um, we would look at turnover percentage. And then it was dependent on those coaches. Um, you know, some like to track like deflections on defense. Some were more, you know, packed in. So that wasn't as important. So it kind of became, you know, how you wanted to play and then really recording, you know, whatever is important to you. And I think that's the most important thing. And sometimes gets lost in translation with analytics. It's not just we're going to launch threes. It's really finding what works best for your team and your personnel and then going with that. So to me, analytics is just information to make decisions. Um, you know, if something's important to you, track it, measure it, and then see. You know, we would break down every like offensive set we had and look at our points per possession for each one and, you know, what really works, what doesn't. You know, what guys should be taking what shots we would track. Um, you know, points per shot and true, uh, true shooting percentage, things like that for individual guys and grade them out. Um, and I think it holds a lot of value. So um, like you said, analytics, it's become such a buzzword and, you know, everyone just assumes it's, you know, launching threes and, and not really uh, offensive rebounding anymore. But to me, it's really just uh, matching your personnel and your team and your style and finding ways to, you know, get a, a little bit of an upper hand. Um, and tracking it. I think, you know, what you emphasize needs to be tracked and recorded, and then you can relay that to the team and, um, you know, keep that going throughout the season and hopefully reach your goals. Yeah, I think it's funny because it's like whoever started analytics, I guess, was the first person to realize that a three is worth more than right. two. And a lot of it's just basic math. <laughs> yeah. So given your analytical background, are you telling your players, stay away from mid-range jumpers or are you telling them 
you know, just take the best shot available? Yeah. So what I've typically done um, with my teams is, you know, you probably have one to three players that that's an okay shot for. Um, and typically, you know, defenses are preparing too. So it's going to be hard to just get threes and layups. So there's times, whether it's late shot clock or certain situations, a lot of time in the last, you know, three, four minutes of a game where you're going to have to take some mid-range shots. It's just a matter of making sure the right guys are taking those. So it's always funny to me when you watch an NBA game and, you know, they're talking about Kawhi Leonard or Devin Booker, Chris Paul, um, saying the mid-range is not dead. Well, those guys are your best players. Sometimes they have to take those shots because there's five defenders out there. I mean, you can't get a three every possession or at least not an open one. So yeah, that shot is important. Um, the biggest thing with the mid range is you just don't want, you know, probably four through nine taking a lot of them. One, it's not a high percentage shot and it's just not paying out. So, um, you know, your two or three best players are going to have to take some and, you know, hopefully they, they make those. Uh, but that's kind of the overall theory is, you know, shoot a lot of threes and then get your best players, um, you know, when they need to taking those shots. So uh, it's part of the game. Uh, I think the biggest thing is just your role players. If they can shoot more threes or get to the rim, that's where that kind of comes into play. And then, like I said, your best players are going to have to do it, whether it's late shot clock, off a ball screen, keeping the defense honest, um, that sort of thing. So um, the mid-range is not dead. I won't tell my guys not to shoot it. It's more situation-based. I don't want to shoot them early in the shot clock. I don't want to shoot them in transition. But if it's late clock or, you know, based on a situation or kind of crunch time, um, you know, the right guy is shooting it, that, that shot's fair game in my opinion. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Especially late in games, you're going to have to right. take some of those mid-range jumpers. And for smaller yeah, guards, too. You, you just need a bucket, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> You'll take whatever no, you absolutely. Can get. Yeah, and I think it's it's better for for smaller guards as well. Like they're not going to be able to get all the way to the basket whenever they want, so right. they need to have that in their game. I think absolutely, and I agree. Yeah, it's definitely not dead either. I was watching a preseason game. It was the uh, the Hawks versus the Bucks. Okay, Dejounte Murray was taking a mid range jumper almost every possession. He was hitting them. Yeah, no, so that's if you get the right guy. I mean, it's a, it's a good shot for the right guy. Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so talk about some of the projects that you've done, uh, you know, to promote yourself or to kind of show what you can do as a coach. Yeah. You know, one of them that caught my eye was you did a, a project about transfers that are entering, you know, a certain conference. Yes. And I thought that was really, really good work. Um, but first of all, just how long did that take? Okay. And you know, did anyone utilize it or did anybody, you know, pick up on it? Yeah. So what I, the, you know, the idea behind that was obviously the transfer portal is so prevalent now in college basketball. Um, so again, just the thing I tried to get the attention of any head coach that was, you know, willing to take a look. Um, so I really did it for, you know, three or four different conferences where I, you know, got every transfer that was entering that conference. And then I tried to, you know, scout them. So I put together, you know, like a minute uh, breakdown on each guy, some of their strengths, and then put that into like a scouting report form as well. So sent that to all coaches in the conference and obviously just left out the guys that were transferring to their school. So just kind of, you know, changed it a little bit each time. But, um, 
Yeah, I'm pretty good with Synergy. So, I mean, obviously it's a huge endeavor and a big project, but I try to knock that out, dedicate, you know, one day to each conference, um, knocking that out. Typically each team would have like three or four impact transfers. So, um, you know, scouting those guys, watching, you know, as many individual clips on them and, and going through their stats and kind of seeing what they're all about. But also going back to previous years, a lot of guys, you know, transferred for a second time now. So seeing what they did at their previous school and, you know, if they're an effective shooter at that level or, you know, whatever it might be, because obviously, you know, as you go up in level or down in level, you're, you're, um, might be asked to do different things. So yeah, sent that out, um, got some responses in terms of like, you know, thank yous and things like that. Obviously no, um, job opportunities or anything like that, but, um, it's fun for me to do that type of stuff. You know, maybe it'll pay off at some point, but also it's really good. Um, you know, getting more scouting experience and, and putting stuff like that together. Uh, Cause that's something I, I do with my own teams. You know, we'll clip up some individual uh, tendencies on guys and, and, you know, make some notes and um, getting practice with that is always good. But yeah, I would say, you know, I really try to like, if I have a day off, you know, just do something like that and send it out and, and you just never know, but um, it's always good experience and fun to do as well. You're watching basketball and uh, learning some things as you watch as well. So it's a lot of fun. All right. Always a fun time when you're watching basketball. Absolutely. Um, did you do one for this coming season? So I did not um, do it this year uh, just because I started this new job and it's very hectic. So a little bit less free time. I have tried to keep up with posting stuff on Twitter and sharing. Um, that's something I always like to do, but I uh, have really focused on uh, getting my program started here. Like I said, I'm brand new here and, and trying to not necessarily change the culture, but kind of, you know, install a new culture and get things going. So um, that's kind of taken up my time, but definitely throughout this season and hopefully next summer, I'll crank that out again. And, um, you know, if coaches are listening, happy to do anything like that for you. I know time is limited and, and staff can be limited. So um, obviously happy to do whatever I can to help. No, that's great. Um, so I want to talk about your time that you spent at Milwaukee for a little bit. Um, so you were the special assistant there. What what does a special assistant do? Yeah, so I think it can vary, uh, you know, probably from program to program. Um, you know, I never really had set, like, I guess, description of what that job was. What it kind of morphed into was highly involved in analytics. So all the analytics went through me uh, after practice, after games, you know, creating reports, sending that to the coaches. Um, I would send like what I call analytical scouting reports. So doing some advanced stats and preparation for, you know, for that next opponent and then matching it with personnel and sets they're running, getting that to the assistants as quickly as possible. I'm you know, getting involved a little bit with video, but it, it was a lot of, you know, whatever coach Baldwin needed. If he, you know, would say, Hey, I want you to look at every turnover we'd had, we've had this year and, and kind of break it down. I would do that. You know, if it's a certain guy that's, you know, has a tendency or whatever it might be, you know, he told me, watch this guy and see what we can get out of it. And, um, and just getting that back to the coaches and then, you know, relaying that to the players as well. Um, again, some scouting report stuff, preparation for opponents. Uh, but I was typically working on reports, you know, breaking down possessions, um, and practicing games and, uh, getting that information to the coaches so they can, you know, best use it and make right decisions on who to play and what combinations work best with whether it's lineup analysis or, you know, just some plus minus stuff, which some people aren't a huge fan of, but I think if you use it correctly, it can have some value. Uh, but yeah, that was, you know, the main work there going to practice and 
um, helping out where I could, you know, whatever was needed that day, but then really, you know, cranking out reports and um, analysis and getting that in the hands of the coaches. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't really understand plus minus because <laughs> I'll watch a game and a guy will be playing really well. Seems yeah. like he's helping the team. And then you look yeah. at the box score and he's like minus 25. Yeah, plus like, minus is, is tricky. I mean, you have to really dive deeper into it on the surface. Like it's kind of just a number. Like you said, you can have a huge impact on a game and you're just in at the wrong time or whatever it might be. Or, yeah. you know, so we would do some stuff with lineups, you know, plus minus for certain lineups. Uh, you know, there's real plus minus out there, things like that. But um, it was just something we use, you know, probably more so with like our bench guys to see who's having an impact when they come in. Um, obviously, in basketball, there's runs and momentum changes, so it's going to fluctuate quite a bit. But um, just another tool, but one that, you know, you kind of have to look deeper into and look for patterns and, you know, look over time. One game, like you said, a guy could you know, be minus 12, but he's a big reason you won the game or whatever it might be. So context is always key. And that's, I think, where analytics does get a bad rap because you'll look at that and say, well, that's just garbage or whatever. But, um, you know, you have to watch the game and, and kind of understand it and put it all together. It's just a piece of the puzzle. Um, and again, it, it really can only be helpful if, if you're using it the right way. So talk about some of the things that you learned working under Coach Baldwin. And, you know, he's most known for his son, Pat yes. Baldwin Jr., yep. who was uh, drafted, I think, in the first round yep. by the Warriors. Correct. Um, so talk about what you learned from him and then also what you saw from, from Pat Jr., you know, and kind of how do you think he's going to translate to the next level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, working for Pat was an awesome experience. Just being around, you know, that environment uh, was really great for me. He is one of the most genuine guys in coaching. Um he is, you know, caring, you know, the first time I, I talked to him on the phone, you know, he picked up on my wife's name, my kid's name, um, you know, things in my personal life and then referenced those like the next time we talked. So you don't get that a lot. I don't think with coaches just because they're so busy. Um, he welcomed, you know, me with open arms. He was that way with all of his players, um, you know, built a really strong culture and was there for his players, his support staff. You know, I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about him. So that was really cool. Um, some things I learned that was first and foremost, just how to treat people. Um, like I said, he was really good with that stuff. He was always checking in on you. And even, you know, we had a, a tough season. There's no doubt about it uh, with injuries um, and just some other things. But always positive, you know, kept things going and, and kept looking out for his guys. Um, great recruiter. Absolutely outstanding recruiter. Relates to, you know, uh, kids really well and, and uh, sells his program and his vision. Um, so I know he's going to do a great job at Georgetown and you know wherever he ends up, you know, maybe in the future. But um, those are the biggest takeaways, just the grind and how hard he works. He put in a lot of time and, and effort and, um, you know, to build up UW-Milwaukee. Uh, so that that was huge for me uh, to be in part of that environment and learn from him. And uh, it's cool to hear all of his experience, obviously, when he was at Northwestern and um, some other programs and, and the good things he did there. So uh, really fortunate and uh, grateful for that experience. Uh, Pat Jr., uh, one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. Um, really awesome dude. Uh, works really hard. Unfortunately, had some kind of nagging injuries uh, during the season that kind of really dated back to high school. Uh, but always positive, great with you know the, his teammates. Um, I think he's built for the NBA. I know he's had a couple of good preseason games already. I mean, I think they were over in, I don't know if it was Japan or China, I can't remember, but had a really good game over there and uh, he can really shoot the ball. 
Uh, now that his ankle is healthy, I think you know people will really start to see that. Uh, he's a really good shooter, can stretch the floor, and you know at his height and length, um, he should be able to get those shots. So uh, he's obviously in a really good situation, you know, being around champions and um, some of the best players, really, you know, of all time. And he'll learn, you know, learn from them, and hopefully, you know, find a role. But um, you know, three and D type you know, guy who can probably eventually morph into a bigger role. And um, I'm excited to watch him. You know, it's, it was cool to to be around him every day and see. Uh, that level of talent, you know, obviously a first-round pick, and you know, would have gone higher probably if he was healthy. Um, but I expect you know big things from him. I know he'll work hard, and uh, we're all excited to watch him. Yeah, for sure. I think his journey is is real interesting and in how he got to the NBA because he was, I think he was like a top ten player coming out of high school. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. And then ended up going to you know a small school to play for his dad. Uh, obviously, it didn't really work out. You know, you mentioned, you know, he had some injuries. Mm -hmm. um, but I also feel like if he had gone to maybe like Duke or Kentucky and still gotten hurt, like he probably would have gotten drafted a little bit higher. Do you think that, you know, kids that are now in high school will learn from that and maybe not want to go to a smaller school or a lesser known school because they know if maybe they don't play as well, they get injured, it could really affect their draft stock. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I think there's probably, you know, arguments to be made on both sides. I think he's happy with the decision he made, you know, playing for your dad. Um, not everyone gets that opportunity and, um, you know, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, I don't think, you know, that he has any regrets. I don't want to obviously speak for either of them, but um, I think there's arguments to be made on both sides. I mean, the experience was awesome. Um, you know, again, obviously the injuries were the major impact, but yeah, there's arguments to be made that competition level maybe isn't as high, uh, whether it's even just in practice or, you know, in games as well. But, um, I think each, each kid should make their own decision. Um, you know, family was obviously really important to the Baldwins and, um, I think they had a really enjoyable year, you know, despite some of the adversity, but, um, you may see some guys maybe, you know, just try to get to the higher level, um, I think it's all dependent on, you know, their, their own situation, but, um, you know, Pat was really good about, you know, kind of doing some, uh, pro level stuff in different sets that we ran. So he was obviously, you know, getting that in practice, but, um, I, it was a cool experience. It was cool to see them together and, you know, the family dynamic. Um, and if he was healthy, I think we'd maybe be having a different discussion about, you know, a really positive season, but, um, he's in the NBA now. So I think it all worked out. Uh, hopefully he does well. Yeah, no, it all worked out in the end. So he got to, to where he wanted to be because he wasn't going to be in college for more than one year anyway. So um, you had experience being a recruiting coordinator. Um, you know, so when you're recruiting somebody, how do you tell that they, they got it? Like they have what you want. Like, how do you know this kid's going to be successful or this kid may not be successful. Like what's that thing that you're looking for? And you can say, yeah, he's got it. He's going to be you know, really good here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of it's kind of off court stuff. I think you kind of look for maturity level, you know, do they love the game? You know, if you're playing at college it, or in college, it kind of becomes a full-time job, you know, so to speak, you know, you're up early and in the gym quite a bit. So kind of have to love it. Um, you know, whether it's weight room, it's just a lot. So, you know, do you see that passion? Do you see that work ethic? That's kind of number one. Uh, are they going to be able to handle, you know, academically and athletically kind of the combination of it and still be able to have kind of a social life? 
um, you know, on the court, you definitely have some things you're looking for, you know, whether it's position specific, whether it's positional size or certain skills you're looking for. You know, for me, like being able to shoot the basketball is really important um, at all five positions or all five spots on the floor. So, you know, can they shoot the basketball at a pretty consistent rate? Um, you know, motor is important. You know, a lot of people might have different opinions on that, whether it's a skill or whatever it is, but uh, guys need to be able to play hard and, and kind of consistently, you know, coachability, uh, character, all important. So if they can start checking some of those boxes, you can start to get into their game a little bit more. You know, do they fit your style of play? You know, I'm a big fast break person, get out and run, you know, space the floor, shoot it. So are they able to handle the ball in transition, you know, shoot the ball, um, you know, get out and run, you know, be in good shape. Things like that are all important. So you kind of start to, you know, work your way down and magnify that and really key in on certain guys. And then from there, it's really, you know, building the relationship as best as possible, you know, selling, you know, your program and what you're looking for. And then, you know, basically explaining how, their skill set and their abilities really match up with what you're looking for and just trying to, uh, you know, sell that in the best way and the experience they'll have. And, um, you know, hopefully you can get guys that fit your culture and your system of play and um, you can kind of keep it going. So now you're you're entering your first season as the head coach uh, at the University School of Milwaukee. Yes. Um, so just talk about how that opportunity came about. And uh, also, what's the first thing that you're going to do to kind of establish credibility and rapport with the with the guys, with the players? Absolutely. So how it came about, um, I had actually interviewed for the head coaching job here last year, last April or May. Um, at the time, I was still a junior college coach. We were still dealing with COVID. Um, and there was nothing in the school open, you know, to work as well. So I turned it down at the time. Um, because like I said, I couldn't get into the school full time. I didn't have a position that would allow me to make enough money to do it at that time. Um, so that's how, you know, that year kind of played out. And then when everything went down at UW Milwaukee and knew I was out on the job hunt again, um, I saw a posting for not only the basketball job here, but the assistant athletic director position. So I kind of jumped at that, um, emailed the AD who I had built a relationship with, um, Again, they had offered it to me the year before. So, and the main reason I told them I couldn't take it was because, you know, there's nothing in the school. I don't have that um, full-time job that will allow me to coach here. So it was really just perfect timing for me. Um, you know, the AD wanted to pair the two. He said, it'd be great if we could get a coach full-time here in the athletic department. Would you be interested? So we, you know, we obviously met and it really came about pretty quick from there. Um, so I started in July, uh, mid-July. Um, and have you know really been enjoying it. First thing I tried to do, we had some stuff over the summer, uh, just get in and really you know interact with the guys, um, have some one-on-one -on -one sit downs and just some group interactions as well. Um, you know some team building stuff. Um, but yeah, we had, we've had some meetings so far this year just to try to you know talk obviously some basketball stuff, but also culture stuff. Uh, it's been really rewarding. So you know it's it's relationships first, it's player driven first. So everything I've tried to do to this point has really been with that being the focus. Um, obviously, we've done some basketball stuff as well, but you know trying to get guys excited about the program, excited about playing basketball, uh, you know excited to play with one another and be a part of USM basketball. And so far, it's been really good. Yeah. So for a lot of younger coaches, you know they're just trying to get experience, and so they're going to want to go after any job that they can get or any position that's open. 
So what would be some advice that you would give to younger coaches to make sure that, you know, just because it's an available job doesn't mean it's right for you. So what would, what advice would you give to make sure that young coaches are getting in good situations and not just taking whatever is available? Yeah, that's a really good point. I've had a lot of coaches in my career kind of give that similar advice. Um, You know, taking a bad job can really derail your career. Um, or at least, you know, kind of set you back a little bit. So everyone wants to be a head coach, right? Or at least the majority, uh, you want to get there as quick as possible. But I would say, you know, just be smart about it. Uh, make sure you're doing your due diligence and you're researching that school and that athletic department and making sure there's the resources there. And, um, you know, a lot of times those jobs are going to be f- with losing teams. So you need, to, you need to kind of see, you know, if you're able to um, turn it around, if you have the support. Um, and again, it's not always about wins and losses, but, you know, a lot of times there's other factors and why that's a losing team. So sorting through that stuff and making sure, um, you know, you feel comfortable with it rather than just jumping at it. Um, I also think, you know, if you can latch on with a really good coach um, who cares about you and maybe it's the same philosophically a little bit, um, you can really grow and develop under them um, and probably be better prepared for that, that coaching opportunity, whatever comes. But um yeah, you see it quite a bit. You know, people are kind of jumping at jobs that maybe they don't know everything about and then it only lasts a certain amount of time. So I would just, you know, caution coaches, you know, do your research, do your homework, try to meet as many people as you can during the interview process and get different opinions, try to meet your players, maybe some parents and obviously some other stakeholders throughout the school and and just get as much information as you can. And, um, you know, again, most people will probably tell you what you want to hear. But uh, part of you know your job is is to try to dig deeper and ask whoever you can and, and get the honest opinion. But um, like I said, I've gotten that advice from many coaches I've worked for that um, you know make sure it's a job you can kind of make your own and, and build, and you have the support necessary uh, before you jump all in and kind of realize that it might be a mistake at that point. Yeah, no, I think that's some great advice um, for a lot of younger coaches who will be listening to this. Um, so just going back to that time where you know, you're trying to, you're trying to make it, you're grinding, you're going hard, you're working these jobs. Um, so what was either the farthest you've gone or the most that you've spent either to attend some type of coaching event or something to try to further your career? Yeah, no, I have spent a lot of money in that regard. Um, so, um, you know, I've put probably 200,000 miles on my car in, in over four years. I'm just trying to find any event to go to, to network, to meet people, but also learn. Um, I try to go to every Final Four, um, try to, you know, hit some different clinics um, and different things. So I've been involved with, if you named, you know, a basketball event out there, I've probably been there or at least tried to to attend there. You know, I've driven out to the East Coast, to the West Coast, um, have driven to individual practices of programs to try to, you know, meet their staff and see, um, you know, obviously, Knowing people is so big and getting an opportunity. So just trying to get in front of different coaches and, and view their practices and just so they can put a name with the face. Um, I've driven basically across the entire country to do that. Um, again, it, it, I'm in a great spot right now. Um, it hasn't paid off to the point of you know getting um, that full-time college position or anything like that. But um, you know I've spent thousands of dollars creating stuff and sending it out and traveling the country and um, got to see a lot of cool things and meet a lot of really good friends and you know, people that have become friends. So 
Uh, no regrets in that regard. Um, and, you know, just I'm trying to be one of those people that do whatever it takes. And um, I think, you know, that work ethic then, uh, you know, seen by your players as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully they'll work hard for you. And um, again, it, it's all part of the experience. Like I said, I'm meeting some great people, watched some really good practices, learned from a lot of really good basketball minds. And, and that's made me a better coach. What are some of the best events for coaches to go to, whether it's like a networking event, um, maybe one that's not too much money? Because I know a lot of <laughs> right. younger coaches don't have a lot of funds to just you know Absolutely. go across the country. Correct. Uh, so what are some of the best events to go to or just best ways for coaches to kind of break into the industry or try to do something to get their name out there? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, if you can go to the Final Four, it's huge. Um, you know, probably don't want to be that guy throwing resumes around and, and trying to kind of overstep, but you can run into so many good people and go to the networking events, the socials, um, you know, kind of that laid back atmosphere is really good for meeting people. Um, the two best events I've ever been to um, in terms of both networking, but also learning really good basketball concepts is coaching you, which is usually out in Las Vegas around summer league time. Um, you know, Brendan Sir and Kevin Eastman uh, are phenomenal. They bring in really high profile coaches and it's not only the speakers that you're getting stuff from, but the interactions with everyone as, as well. And then hands down, the biggest impact that I have found in basketball is basketball immersion. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, Chris Oliver, he's huge on social media, uh, really good basketball mind. You know, I've stolen so much from him. He hosts um, a lot of clinics. Um, I think he calls them BI academies. I've been to two of those, basketball immersion academies. Um, if you want to pack a lot into like a two-day event and meet like-minded coaches and learn just a ton of things that you can actually take with you to your program or to your head coach if you're an assistant, uh, I definitely recommend checking out Basketball Immersion. Um, you know, that you can sign up online and be a part of the community. I don't know exactly what it is right now. It's probably like $125 for a membership. Um, but you'll get a lot out of that, and I couldn't recommend that more. Yeah, I follow Basketball Immersion as well. They have a lot of great stuff on there. Um, so now we'll, we'll move into a segment that we have on this show. It's called Explain That Tweet. Okay. So I'm going to read back one of your tweets and then you just offer a little explanation on it. Okay. Um, so this one says, I started becoming a better coach the minute I started ignoring 90% of the content out there. So just talk about how that came about and, sure. uh, you know, how it's made you a better coach by ignoring all the yeah, content. Yeah. I think, um, you know, as you get older or coach a little bit more, you start to get more, you know, solid with the way you want to play. You know, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I would take notes on everything and, and save every video and, you know, write down every set. This became like too much. At some point, you have to kind of really focus in on what's most important to you. So, you know, kind of less is more type thing. And obviously, you know, you're on Twitter and, and social media. There's just so much shared. Um, and, you know, 90% of it is not relevant to one, your style of play or what you're looking for. You know, people are out there selling playbooks of a thousand plays. I'm not going to sort through a thousand plays, um, you know, where maybe one or two of those is is suitable to my personnel. So, um, 
and I'm not trying to throw shade or anything like that. I think it's great that, you know, so many people are sharing out there, but I think eventually you get to a point where you kind of only want to kind of take in the things you're looking for. So, you know, now on Twitter, I'll, I'll archive just the things that are relevant to me and then you'll know, scroll past the rest. Whereas I used to just really try to take it all in and it just was so much. And I think, you know, once you become a head coach, you kind of understand that you know, less is more a little bit. You really have to kind of focus in on certain things. So, you know, I look for five out stuff. I look for, you know, defensive concepts, some transition stuff, um, culture stuff. Other than that, I pretty much try to ignore uh, what's out there unless it's, you know, relevant to what I'm doing. Yeah, you can definitely get uh, analysis paralysis. Absolutely. Like, there's just so much information out there. You know, I get that way with like sets and plays. Like you see a cool play on Twitter and it's like, oh, I want to run that. I want right. to do that. Yeah. But you can't have, can't yeah, have so much. Yeah. Like my fast draw when I was, you know, starting was like thousands of plays. And at the end of the day, it's, those are all good plays, but I mean, you can't, you can't run that many. So Yeah. No, there's one play that I think you posted. It was a, a Virginia tech play. Okay. From, I'm like, yeah, I, I might want to. Yeah, and that's the thing. That if you see one you like, you know, take it. You know, it's it's yeah. just then scroll past the other ones before you start overthinking. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, this has been great. You know, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Um, just last question. You know, you're a Wisconsin guy. Are you Are you born in Wisconsin? Or are you so just born in Illinois? Have spent most of my life in Wisconsin. Okay. So my question is. How does the state of Wisconsin consistently produce so many big, slow white guys? <laughs> That's what we're known for. Big uh, country, uh, farm boys. Um, yeah, you do see quite a bit of those. You know, a lot of the schools that are kind of out in rural areas, that tends to be pretty common. Um, but, you know, the Badgers have been pretty good at finding enough of them that are good enough to get by. Um, and actually, some have gone pro, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, Wisconsin, we're kind of known for you know, a little bit slower basketball. Obviously the swing has been so widely used in the state for, you know, the last 20 years since Bo Ryan kind of um, became a household name. But yeah, a lot of big farm boys, a lot of big boys uh, that are good around the basket, but yeah, maybe a little bit slower at times. Yeah, I feel like all those big Wisconsin guys evolved into Frank Kaminsky. Like he was like the peak of yep. the big, slow white yep. guys. Yeah, it kind of was on like an upward trajectory of right. a little bit more all, athletic, a little bit more skilled. And yeah, Frank was a really good player. Yeah, all those guys who came before him walked so Frank Kaminsky <laughs> could run. That's a good way to put it. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great. Really appreciate you taking the time to join the Becoming today and share your journey and, you know, just spread a lot of knowledge and wisdom for all the coaches out there that are listening. And if there's anything you know, that you want to either plug or just, you know, give some shout outs, anything that, you know, you want to announce or anything, just want to give you that opportunity before we, before we close out. Awesome. No, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Always good to talk basketball and I appreciate you sharing um, not only my stories, but just the game in general. I think it's really cool. Um, you know, I, I'm really thankful for everyone that has helped me in my career and no one does it alone. So if I can ever be a resource, um, to anyone out there that's listening, whether it's analytics-based or um, just anything, bouncing ideas, just someone to talk to, more than happy to do that. Um, my email is just andyfitzgerald0 at gmail.com. And if you want to text me, you know, my number is 262-366-5892. 
always happy to talk and, and happy to share. But once again, thank you so much. Uh, it was really fun to talk with you. And uh, thanks again for everything you do. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Well, there you have it, folks. Appreciate Coach once again, and we'll see you next time.